This is Jasper Reed, and this is Letter from India. I thought my first topic might be something to do with travelling between the UK and India, which um, which not many people do. Not many people travel anywhere in the world at the moment um, with all this virus stuff going on. But I thought that would sort of be an interesting um, mini story, um, and also talk a little bit about what it's like being in India and what's going on here because the world has a very particular lens on India um, and right now it's full of lurid headlines about virus cases and people are scared about India and people in India are a bit scared but I thought I'd just reflect on that firsthand a bit so I've been back three or four days now in in Delhi um, and I'm quarantining for a couple of weeks I actually went for a walk this morning, which I'm not sure I'm allowed to do, but I wanted to see the street dogs. And Elsa Reed um, wanted me to report back on all the animals that she's named and knows and loves and feeds. So I've seen Mika, I've seen um, I've seen uh, um, Coriander, I've seen Apollo, and I've seen the junkyard poppy puppy that's um, that's grown up into a dog since we were away um, and I've reported that back so I felt that was more important than being quarantined and locked down and the rest of it I think increasingly I feel like so long as one's safe and had tests and you're kind of confident in your own abilities then you should interpret all of these rules because otherwise you'll you'll be a prisoner and who knows how long that will last but anyway been here a few days the flight back was sort of interesting it was full of rules um I think there were half a dozen forms you had to download and complete and tracking apps and affidavits and all sorts of stuff. And I can't really help thinking that the more the more you you do of that, actually, the higher the risk is. It's, you know, it's like airport security. They add things, they add things, they add things, and you feel like it just creates, it creates a muddle, creates a lot of brain damage for everybody. But I did do all the forms, and there was a scrabbling around thing. The key thing was having a COVID test, a negative one, obviously, for India. So I did that with the NHS, and that was kind of a process in itself because you couldn't get one unless you had the symptoms. And I know you shouldn't say that, but, you know, you're being asked to test. So it took me ages, and they sent me a home test, which I duly did, and I posted it in a small village in Warwickshire and then they lost it and then they found it and literally on the day I was traveling they sent me a text message saying your test is negative but of course that would have been useless but fortunately because it didn't have your name on or a date and the Indian authorities wouldn't have recognized it but fortunately I'd taken um, you know precautions by getting a private test with a with a friend who happened to have set up a clinic in London which was lucky and that was, you know, that was in my hand and it had information on it um, and you paid money and you, and you got it. So, you know, I'd assembled all my paperwork and I got up really early. I left Megan kind of in the dead of night from Pimlico in the flat we were staying and got to Heathrow, which was dead. And Heathrow was, I don't know, it was weird. Everybody queuing up and really tense check-in staff. I got into an incident with a poor woman who was traveling back to China. She was English. She had two young girls. I mean, they must have been three and four. 
and she couldn't make the Chinese health app work, and she was getting more and more panicky, about to miss her flight. And no one, none of the airport authorities, none of the Air France people were helping her. So once I checked in, I thought, well, I've got to help her. And I kicked up such an enormous fuss with Air France, and, you know, I was getting the usual English, don't raise your voice to me, step away, sir, all of this. But I think I found, actually, that was my first observation on the trip, was when people are scared and they're all lined up with their masks, it just kind of exacerbates the whole thing about, you know, no one will say anything, no one will do anything, everyone will follow the rules. And that's what, personally, I think is the most pernicious thing about this virus and the associated rules, is it 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 basically turns people into into prisoners before they know it it kind of institutionalizes them and then something as obvious as helping a young mother with her children going to china on her own and many people in that queue knew, knew what that was like suddenly people don't do it and they don't do it necessarily in the best of times but literally no one was helping her anyway i felt good about helping her but i was sort of thinking that i just i won't even start my journey because some you know some policeman will turn up and then there'll be a problem and Anyway, it didn't happen. So I got through, um, and I'll get to the end of the story later because it was actually easier at the India end because just people's attitude in England was just so officious and lots of little bureaucrats. And of course, if you're a, you know, if you're the security guys or the check-in people, the rest of it, and you have a slightly kind of officious tendency, this just makes it worse. This is like manner from officialdom heaven for, for, for these little bureaucrats. But anyway, I got through and um, I took a flight to Paris that was pretty easy, really. I mean, I sort of nodded off because I got up at three in the morning or two in the morning to leave. And it was quite nice being in Paris for two minutes. I called my father, who's in the Dordogne, and it was nice to be on the same time zone and sort of be around French stuff and you know, talk a little bit of French, at least to, you know, to get my water and get on the plane. And actually boarding the plane was fine. You know, they took documents and, of course, that the embassies are telling the airlines to do stuff. The airlines are having to fill forms in. Everyone's desperate. They don't get caught out. And, you know, the airlines are fined or the embassies told by the central health authorities that, you know, they, you know, they can't do what they're doing. And anyway, so everyone's sort of covering themselves. Anyway, I got through and it was great getting on that Air France flight. It was a brand new plane, a dreamliner. They, when I flew out of India before, they'd managed to find the oldest um, plane uh, in the Air France network, which they packed in with seats for these evacuation flights. I mean, no one's making money in airlines. So, you know, if they can jam people in. So, it, I mean, it was pretty true that the amount of people trying to leave India is, is a lot greater than the number of people going into India. But I guess the flight was a quarter full and I had and a sort of empty row and it was really quite nice and the crew were great. It was quite nice to sort of see the chic French people. Um, I mean, France didn't have much to do with the trip other than the fact I was on Air France because you couldn't fly direct to India except on Air India. <laughs> I'd rather get the virus than be on Air India. Um, I don't mean to be mean about Air India, but... Anyway, it was nice to sort of be around the French and other than occasionally the odd, you know, cabin crew coming past and saying, put the mask over your nose, because occasionally I would let the mask slip so I could breathe through my nose. And 
anyway, um, it was an easy flight. And one warning for anyone going on flights is the food is so useless now because they've got freaked out by, you know, hygiene and all that stuff. So they're just, just not you know, giving you some, some gloop. Um, and I watched some films and, you know, we landed at night and, and there was no one on. So it was really quick to get off. And I sort of immediately felt better being in India, but just because the sort of, you know, people were a bit more relaxed and laid back and, you know, there wasn't the same kind of tight, um, you know, anxiety that you see in Western countries. I guess that's the whole thing about this virus is, is if you're in places like India where people are used to higher risks and hustle and bustle and physical contact and the rest of it, people that have a much more relaxed stance. If you're in the West where people have long since kind of forgotten about those things, it doesn't take much, including this virus, obviously, to, to make everyone uptight. And then other people get uptight and you know you have that effect all over society. But in India, people were kind of loafing around a bit more and you know, it's the usual thing in India that if you're a white skinned person and you're saying namaskar and apkisehe to people and you know, using what little Hindi I have, uh, people relaxed even more. So that felt good and you breezed through the airport, wasn't really anyone in there and um then the sort of process started. This is just sort of interesting for anyone that's interested, but um yeah, there was a whole kind of system for people that were pre-approved, including obviously, I mean, there was a woman who was obviously a high-ranking somebody and she'd been met off the flight and she, she was kind of whisked through. So I should think as ever in every country, but particularly in places like India, there's one law for the, one rule for the Medes and another for the Persians, as they say, um, and or anyone that had a kind of cock and bull story about how they had a heart condition because you were kind of pre-approved for for home quarantine, because sort of everyone has to quarantine, but it's just a matter of, do you get put in government quarantine or, or do you get let home? So I went into the non-approved. Yeah, I had a quick chat and that was fine and was waved through. I got to immigration and I made a schoolboy error of going to a desk. There were 10 desks empty with people on them, you know, 10 desks with, with, with immigration people on. And I picked the guy who was obviously on day three um, I don't think he'd be head of the immigration, um, you know, annual awards for efficiency. And he took about 20 minutes, which was crazy. And he kept going back to talk to his, his officials. Um, so it was, a, I don't know, it was a bit like being checked into the country by deputy dog or someone. Um, anyway, I kept, I bit my tongue because the key, obviously, with anything all around the world in India is, is patience, which I'm not necessarily good at, but I have got better at it in India. So anyway, then we got through, kind of breezed through customs. Everyone was relaxed there, sitting with their feet on desks. I don't think they particularly cared about, care about what's coming into the country. And then as you came out, there was the whole kind of COVID triage system. They'd employed some young guys who were quite fun and nice and quite keen to please to sort of explain to the foreigners, the Goras, who, you know, what to do. And there was desk after desk that you had to move down. It was like old Soviet style or old Indian Babu style. Um, <clears throat> very familiar to me. Um, pretty, <laughs> probably pretty daunting for people. I, I helped a couple of French guys who were sort of having a fit. Um, anyway, you know, one guy filled in this form, then he sent me to a guy that said he was a doctor. You look more like an accountant, but maybe it's the same sort of thing. 
he did a cursory read of my forms and then they stamped my they stamped my wrist with a kind of official looking stamp and said you know you need to keep that on of course subsequently on the first hand washing which you were already also told to do it fell off uh, so <laughs> that was sort of amusing um, anyway I kind of chatted my way down that line sleepy guys not much to do really boring job I think honestly if you wanted to get into India and you didn't have any paperwork you probably could not that I'm advocating that of course but and then I was in my car with Suresh picking me up which is a great privilege obviously of being in India and so from landing to being picked up it was literally 20 minutes which was great and we got in the car and I put some music on and you know, there was no one really in the city, so we were home within another 20 minutes. And the dog, Quince, our, our, you know, our um, golden retriever, went crazy, whooped, 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 and ran around in circles. You know, I haven't seen her for a month. The girls haven't seen her for three months. Cats were, were pleased to see me, and a kind of Persian cat, uh, we will decide whether we're pleased to see anyone sort of a look. Um, and I settled in, I had a bite to eat, it was really nice to be home, it was so nice to be home, I mean everyone's very deracinated by kind of this whole thing, and it felt good to be back in our place, of course, having put the girls into school in the UK and boarding school a week before, and left Megan, um, my wife, and you know, scattering all of us to the seven winds with 13 year old twin girls is, has been a big, big change. So coming home was was wonderful, but I was sorry not to have the girls with me. And of course, having talked to them in, in the subsequent days, the week after, it's amazing, you know, how they long for India, which is their home. And it's a good lesson in home is where you all are, homes where your family is, homes where your animals are, homes where your spirit is. So anyway, uh, in the following week, um, you know, I've been at home really because of this quarantine. I walked out this morning to check on. Elsa's dogs and street dogs and a little cat that we buried in a park nearby and three of Elsa's parrots that had died, two of them during lockdown actually because we couldn't get food because the girls wanted the parrots and the dogs and everybody living or dead to know where we were um, in the universe and that was important to them because they'd left India expecting to come back and then we put them in school and so they wanted to send messages to all of their animals um, you know, hands across the universe to to everyone keep in touch in, in, in a kind of cosmic way. Um, but I haven't been out other than that. Oh, I did go to, to neighbours for drinks and rapidly drank a bottle of wine and kind of came back and that was my social excitement for the week. It's probably enough. But being in India is sort of interesting. I mean, what's the update here? I mean, you know, virus numbers rising as anyone reads around the world, breaking records every day. You know, pretty much every couple of days, India will break the global record for numbers of cases per day. But that's entirely to be expected in a place with, you know, one point, almost 1.4 billion people. So I think the, you know, the, the common acceptance, whatever people are reading is that the virus is pretty much everywhere and it, and you know, it's making its way through society. And obviously India is so huge that depending on what point the virus got going, the country's, you know, the virus is spreading at multiple speeds. Some time, I think, away from what they call the peak of cases. Um, and what are we running at? About 100,000 cases a, a day. Now, that's only the reported cases. So I think you could comfortably multiply that by three. And then it's anyone's guess what the, what the real number is. But 
I suppose the truth of India is that, you know, it's always been incredibly difficult to do anything to meaningfully stop this virus. And in a philosophical way, the sooner it starts and goes through society, the sooner the sooner the story ends. Of course, the intriguing thing is, I mean, I think if any country in the West had these numbers, they would be locked down with a with a with a vengeance. Um, here, of course, while the numbers are going up, the whole of society is opening up. Businesses, people going out. I mean, it's a conundrum if you're obsessed by the numbers because you don't want to go out. And the people that are obsessed by the numbers are people that either don't have to go out because they're comfortable enough, or they're 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 also that, but they're reading the papers all the time, or they're in families where they're freaking out about one person going out, coming back, and anyway, our business is opening up, and our people are back to work, and everyone's desperate to get back to work. I mean, that's the truth of it. Is you know that that um, ruining your livelihood is much worse than getting the virus, whichever way you 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 skin the cat. So. I think India is coming back to life. It's the usual conundrum about India, isn't it? That the, the, what they always say is that the opposite of what you say about anything in India is also true. So it's all going haywire on the virus, but it's all opening up. So that's the sort of dichotomy, it's sort of very Indian like that. But it's because it's a huge place and you can't really generalize anyway. But So um, that's what's happening. People are coming out. I think what we hear is that people are nervous of crowds. There's a cottage industry here of people hopping in their car and going to party in a hotel room over a weekend. And lots of hotels, particularly ones on the fringes of town, have sort of set up party rooms where families can socialize in a bubble because I think everyone's been going crazy. I mean, this has been going on for six months now. So some families literally haven't stepped outside. So that's happening. And then I think there's a sort of, um, you know, there's a flock mentality. A few go out, they say it was fine. A few more go out, more people go out and so on and so forth. So um, everything's going on really here. And I think um, I personally feel very optimistic that India won't get caught in a kind of sort of doom loop or a death spiral of, of fear and lockdown followed by more lockdown, followed by lack of confidence, followed by new rules, followed by collapse of confidence, followed by collapse of economy and all that that entails. Um, I'm hoping there's a dawning realization around the world that, um, you know, the the lockdown is not without costs and it's not as simple as talking about the absolute value of life because, you know, I find that intriguing in myself because in good times, you know, when there are serious medical issues, it isn't the case that life has no cost or, or, that, or that you will save life at any cost. And if you're sick with cancer, anyone will know that there's a limit to the treatment that the gut, you know, a, a health provider will, will, will give you. Anyone that's insured will know that, um, insurers and the actuaries that work with them, the risk assessors will do anything to basically limit your treatment. So, uh, it seems like in places like England and other, you know, so-called mature economies, there's a view that says we will preserve life at any cost. But, but that's never the case. I mean, I, I suspect that the NHS, for example, in England has a, an actuarial system where they will actually determine what they will spend to save a life. And of course, in the end here, when we, we add up the billions and the trillions that you know, have been spent to counter COVID, to prop up the economy, or, or, or you add in the consequential costs and the damage, and you divide that by the number of lives saved, and even that's an interesting topic because 
were you saving the life of a young person or you saving the life of someone who will die next year? It's a different thing. But anyway, even if you took the numbers you've apparently saved and, and you divided that into the, the billions and the trillions, <clears throat> it's a huge cost per person. So, you know, I think in India, just leaping back to India, you no one can afford to do that. It wasn't in any case affordable to spend billions and trillions on, on saving lives. The government will say they're spending it, but, it, but it's not really being spent. I mean, we're able to get loans as businesses, but you can't actually get them however hard you try. There are many bureaucrats stopping getting them. So basically, you can't afford it. You have to get on, and then life goes on. And the this sort of, you know, very involved and very personal, very subjective, endless debate about what's right and wrong in countries where they are trying to stop it or they are spending vast sums of money just doesn't happen in India because you don't have the luxury to have that argument. And, and in a way, I'm in favour of that personally because I think this virus has created all sorts of, well, let's call it unhelpful introspection especially amongst the, you know, the privileged classes. I mean, the whole lockdown thing, everyone has been talking about themselves, how they found themselves, they're into yoga, they've, they've discovered God, they're amazing cooks. And actually, it's, it's you know, an actual fact, it's the case that the vast majority of the world has been badly, badly damaged and often ruined by, by this lockdown. And yet, anyone that's comfortable and sitting at home is, is prattling on about how they've been discovering themselves and how they've had a great summer. And I don't doubt that some people have a great summer, but it, but it's amazing how few people say, but I'm, it must have been terrifying for others. Having said that, that's not completely true because we did raise a huge amount of money from our charity because a lot of people did recognize that phenomenon. So maybe I'm being, maybe I'm being a little unfair with all of this. So those are some reflections from Mother India. Um, I'm not sure if this is a podcast or qualifies. I think you need kind of fun music at the beginning and fun music at the end and maybe a summary and a famous guest or, or something to get anyone to listen. But it's, um, it's a start. I'd love to know what you think because I, I might try and do more of these and make them more professional, maybe less sort of a stream of consciousness, which is what this is. But anyway, um, love to you. Salams from India missing everybody um but life and this is the end this is the lesson isn't it life goes on whatever and i think this virus and all the restrictions the rest of it in historical context will be seen to be not as as serious or as interesting as it appears to people now um and i was really happy just to get back to india to prove on a personal level that you can do it, that you can travel, that you are free. Um, and that, I think, is the thing that I'm most interested personally, selfishly, in preserving is, is your liberty. On that note, um, talk to you next time. Bye.